So thank you so much for coming. Very excited that you're here today. Please come on in, have a seat. Uh, my name's Emily Britson. I am a commissioner in our beautiful city of Kentwood. So if you're not from Kentwood, thank you for coming. And thanks to Broadleaf Local Beer. Every beverage, yes, great business. Every drink that you purchase today, a, a part of the proceeds will go back to the Refugee Education Center, which is very near and dear to my heart in Kentwood. They work with a lot of our students and keep them on track to be successful in school. Um, so, th and thanks to WKTV. Thank you so much for doing the audio. This will be pushed out as a podcast. So hopefully more of us will learn and, and learn from this conversation today. So thank you so much for that. First thing I want to introduce, oops, my um, partner in justice. We don't like to call it crime. So Marshall <laughs> Kilgore. So please come on up here, sir. Um, he is currently a student at Western Michigan University. He studies political science and communication. He has served as a trustee for the Kalamazoo Democratic Party and a field organizer for our wonderful governor, Gretchen Whitmer. Marshall is currently the Western Michigan Director for United Precinct Delegates. It's a grassroots organization with efforts focused on generating community empowerment, improving education policy, public transportation, healthcare resources, and crime prevention in our communities. He is an activist fighting for those within marginalized communities and always lends his voice to those in need. So thank you so much for working with me on this project. I really appreciate you and all the work that you do. So thank you so much. So um, I'll give Marshall the mic as we get started. Oh, thank you, Emily. Well, Emily is phenomenal. So I want to give you folks a little background to why we did this, right? Why we're all here. We've got some really bad weather coming, right? We saw the snow flurries, um, you know, and I'm an activist. I started my activism by handing out water and those little cutie oranges to the homeless downtown during the heat wave in the summer. So I saw a need. And so Emily and I were at Progressives in the Park, and I'm like, we've got to pair together, right? Because there's so much power when folks from minority groups come together for good causes. And so our friends and our family who have experienced homelessness will tell you that this is something that is not specific to one group. There's so many folks. I think all of us in this room some way have been affected by homelessness by knowing it, by seeing it on the streets, by feeling that feeling in your heart when you see someone panhandling, right, on the side of the highway. So this is something that we knew we needed to have a community conversation and to activate, right? To not only have these conversations, right, and have an echo chamber because we all want to be change agents, but to also, to also spark some ideas about what we can do as everyday citizens, right? You don't have to be a commissioner or an activist to help this cause. So I thank you all for being here and we're gonna get going. So I'd like to introduce Judge William Kelly here. He's our great keynote. To give you some background about this great gentleman, since 1979, Judge Kelly has served the Kentwood community as Kentwood's first and only district court judge. Judge Kelly was elected in November of 1978. 
This was a special honor because Judge Kelly succeeded his father, Joseph Kelly, mm -hmm. who served as Kentwood's municipal judge from 1971 to 1979. Um, judge Kelly is a longtime resident of Kentwood and is a parishioner of St. Mary Magdalene. Hopefully I didn't butcher that too much. Judge Kelly is a father of five children. He has a great interest in technology and he looks for ways that technology can better serve the justice system and the community of Kentwood. So we wanted him to be our keynote because this is someone that is so invested in our communities. So please welcome Judge Kelly. Thank you, Marshall. So, um, Kentwood, uh, as, as a district judge, I uh, have a number of uh, different duties, and one of those duties is to preside over landlord-tenant cases. Each year, Kentwood starts about 1,800 landlord-tenant cases, um, and uh, in addition to that, uh, I handle misdemeanors. In those misdemeanors, I see so many people in front of me for uh, substance abuse issues, uh, domestic violence issues and a uh, number of people in front of me with mental health issues. So uh, we really have to take a holistic approach uh, towards uh, the people that come to court um, and in our society. Um, at one time, Kentwood uh, got a moniker of Rentwood uh, because we had so many apartments here and so many, some people were saying, wait a second, there's gonna be more tenants in apartments than there are homeowners and we wanted to have more stability in our community and so in the early 80s, there was a, a resolution passed, they called it 70-30, in which 70% of the homes would be owner-occupied, uh, single-family homes or condos, uh, and only 30% uh, rental. And we have achieved that, that goal now. But um, in the meantime, uh, something we didn't foresee in the 80s, early 80s, is uh, the number of refugees being settled here in the United States. And Bethany Christian Services um, has resettled a number of people, and they've always looked for where can we relocate these people. And so a number of them were relocated uh, here in Kentwood. Uh, so we now have a very, very diverse community. Uh, when I was elected uh, in 1978, uh, we had very few um, uh, people who were born outside the United States. Uh, so far this year, I, well, the high school has uh, students speaking 60 different languages at home. Um, and this year we've used interpreters 130 times in 15 different languages. So we have a very, very diverse community uh, here in Kentwood. <clears throat> My daughter married a uh, fellow from uh, 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 in England and he uh, works for the, the uh, United Kingdom and he's, his ministry, he's working with the ministry on homelessness. And he says he's, the people in England are looking towards the United States uh, because we've had a lot of experience with homelessness and it's now becoming a problem there because the uh, real estate prices are going through the roof there, just as they are here in Grand Rapids. Um, although still Grand Rapids has uh, affordable rent compared to other places. I, I just do not understand how people can, can live in California or New York. I don't care how much sunshine they get in California. It's just, I, I just and have to worry about fires and, and all that other stuff. God love them. Um, somebody has to do it. So, But we, our rents are going up quite a bit. Um, 
And so it, it becomes a, an issue about people being able to afford uh, the, the, the rents. Um, fortunately, our economy right now is going quite well. Um, and rent uh, or the um, uh, joblessness rate is very, very low. That's good. But a lot of people are just one step away from a problem. Uh, I had a couple of people in court this week, or this last week, uh, because uh, they hadn't paid their rent. And I said, why haven't you paid your rent? And they said, well, General Motors went on strike. And so they were on the strike line. Or they work for the suppliers to General Motors. And so they were laid off. They didn't even get strike pay. But they suffered the ramifications of the strike. Other people are in front of me, well, they had a funeral. And somebody had to, they had to take the rent money and pay for the funeral or their car broke down. So everybody, there's a lot of people, I shouldn't say everybody, but there's a lot of people who are one event away from not being able to pay the rent. So we have um, adopted a program that was started in Kalamazoo uh, and Lance, uh, Ingham County uh, was the second court. We were the third court to adopt the eviction diversion program. And this eviction diversion program uh, representatives from Salvation Army and Department of Health and Human Services come to the court um, one morning every month and people who cannot pay the rent, uh, need financial help, are able to go out and talk with a representative from Salvation Army uh, there at the court and then be referred to the Department of Health and Human Services. So they are able to find out are they going to be eligible for assistance and if so, how much? How much do they have to come up within the next 10 days. This means that they don't have to go down to their uh, caseworker downtown. The caseworker is right here in, in the court. Um, and as a result of that, they, the specialists who are there are able to tap into a couple of the funds that, that DHHS has uh, for uh, uh, helping out with rent, uh, state emergency relief. Uh, Grand Rapids has uh, followed this, and so now Grand Rapids also has an eviction diversion program. And if people qualify for financial assistance, the case is conditionally dismissed so they do not get a judgment against them, uh, and a number of people are able to get that financial help uh, to, to, get, uh, to get over that bridge. Um, this is not meant as a handout for people to come back again and again and again. They want to be able to see that the person, if they get across this bridge, they will be able to sustain their occupancy and be able to pay the rent in the future. Um, we've also established a sobriety court. Uh, a number of people, as I mentioned, come into court or uh, are not able to pay the rent because of substance issues or um, domestic violence. People are separated because of domestic violence. Uh, the, the breadwinner is now out of the house, and so it's more difficult for the person to um, the person who's remaining to pay the rent and also for the person who's been uh, separated uh, to, to pay the rent. And so uh, that's another issue that, that pops up frequently. Um, we've had, um, oh, the city also uh, is very concerned that we don't have slums. Uh, and so the city is very uh, inspector. The city inspector goes out, makes sure that uh, the homes are up, the, the rental units are up to code. Uh, we had a 
some issues going on with a major apartment complex right now, and they're coming back. They've got to fix it. They've got to keep up, keep their place up to code, uh, because if somebody's paying the rent, they ought to be able to have an apartment that's uh, reasonable, fit for human habitation, and kept in reasonable repair, and up to code. Um, before 2008, we saw very few cases of mortgage foreclosures. Uh, between 2008 and 2000, maybe 14 or so, we saw a number of people who were not able to, to pay, uh, pay their mortgage and they, they were evicted. And that was really, really sad because people had put that big down payment on, they were invested in the American dream, and now they weren't able to keep that, to keep that up. Um, and fortunately, those uh, cases have, have uh, pretty much gone away. Uh, maybe um, maybe 10 a year, like it used to be. But for a while, it was two or three a week. Uh, so that's like 100, 150 a year. Um, so it's a very complex issue. As I mentioned, we need a holistic approach to it because there's not only is the economy, uh, it's substance abuse, it's mental health. And fortunately, we have a number of facilities here in Kent County uh, in which people are able to get that. Uh, some people, of course, do not want to be involved in the shelter. They would rather live under a bridge. Um, and it's really difficult to, to approach those, that, that constituency. Uh, but we still, uh, it's still important to have those shelters in place because there are some people who just fall through the cracks. They've lost their job. Uh, they've, they've been, uh, uh, they're separated from their family for one reason or another domestic violence, substance abuse, whatever, and um, we need to get people back on track. So uh, fortunately, we have a number of people here who are able to, to address some of those issues and tell us how we are addressing those issues. Um, and so, uh, Emily? Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Judge Kelly. And he's going to be here throughout. So we'll have, at the very end of our program, we'll have time for Q&A. So if you have any questions for Judge Kelly. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Please have a seat anywhere you would like. Okay, great. Okay. So we'll get started with our panel discussion then. First up, I want to introduce Mr. James White. So thank you, sir, for joining us today. He is a disposition relationship manner manager within the Asset Management Div Division of Sanair. He represents investors and manages the transfer, sale, and disposition of ownership interest on the behalf of Sanair. Prior to joining Sanair, he worked as a Senior Deputy Director in the Community Development Division of Fannie Mae. In addition, he is an experienced real estate developer and served as a managing partner of Ludell White Development and is a licensed real estate broker. So knows a lot about real estate. Has a Bachelor of Business from Davenport and a Master's in Public Administration with an emphasis in urban and regional planning from GVSU. In addition to having spent four years on the City of Grand Rapids planning as a planning commissioner, serves on the board of several organizations, including Executive Committee of Habitat for Humanity of Kent County, United Methodist Community House, and Oasis Community of West Michigan. Loves football and is a boxing fan, um, and hopefully you're not a Lions fan. We're keeping you from that today. Sorry about that, sir. Frustrated Lions fan. <laughs> All right, fair enough. And enjoys spending time with his kids. So please welcome Mr. James White. Thank you. 
I have the pleasure of introducing a friend of our community, Cheryl Shook. <laughs> she is the executive director of Family Promise. After growing up in Kalamazoo, a special place of mine, Kalamazoo, Michigan, and graduating from U of M, Cheryl lived in Chicago for 16 years, developing a career as a sales and marketing executive in the computer industry. She worked with large international corporations through most of her career, ending with an exciting opportunity opportunity to be a part of a small startup in Silicon Valley, helping to grow the organization and take it public. Since moving back to West Michigan in 2002, she has devoted expertise to the nonprofit sector. Over the past 10 years as Executive Director of Family Promise of Grand Rapids, she helps homeless children and their families as they work to find a new home. Family Promise is in its 22nd year of providing emergency, emergency shelter and housing services to families with children in Grand Rapids, uh, having served over 5,000 children in our community. So Cheryl is doing an amazing work and please welcome her as one of our panelists. Okay, next up is Commissioner Stephen Wooden. So Stephen, thank you for joining us today. He represents portions of Northeast Grand Rapids and Plainfield Township, and he's dedicated a significant portion of his life and career to bringing down the cost of housing for working families and more vulnerable people. He has served on the Grand Rapids Housing Appeals Board, Great Housing Strategies Workgroup. Uh, Stephen has also recently served on the board for the Creston Neighborhood Association, where he helped steer the neighborhood's advocacy efforts regarding development and affordable housing. He also works as a housing and community development associate for Dwelling Place of Grand Rapids, which does great work in our community. And he lives in Creston neighborhood with his beautiful wife, Adeline. So thank you so much for joining us today, Commissioner Wooden. And lastly, but certainly not least, Wendy Rendall, the director of ENTF, Kent County Essential Needs Task Force. Ms. Randall has been the director of ENTF since March 2017. She spent more than 13 years in the nonprofit workforce development system, overseeing employment and training programs, assisting in the design and implementation of service collaborations, and ensuring compliance to grant and accreditation requirements. This work led to her participation in the ENTF Economic and Workforce Development Subcommittee prior to becoming ENTF director. ENTF is a covenant partner, bringing together nearly 130 service providers, members of local government, funders, and community advocates across five basic needs areas to assess need, identify gaps, or re redone agencies, align service strategies, and initiate policy change for eliminating disparate outcomes. ENFT committees include transportation, food and nutrition, economic workforce development, the coalition to end homelessness, and energy efficiency. Wendy sits on the Kent County Com Community Action Advisory Governance Board, Kent County Human Services Committee, United Way 2020 Census Advisory Committee, Emergency Food and Shelter Program Board, UCOM Board of Directors, Coalition to Keep Michigan Warm, supports the K-Connect Home and Family Stability Work, and the Development Com Committee of Kent County Food P 
Policy Council, among other area-wide basic needs system initiatives. So Wendy does amazing work for our communities, so please welcome her. All right. And as Emily and I put together this great group of folks, we wanted diversity and means of thoughts and experiences. So from their bios, you all can see that these are some great folks. And I think we're ready to get into the conversation. Okay, so we'll have about 60 minutes to go through some Q&A. We'll kind of, Marshall can start us off with the first question. Like I said, in the last 30 minutes, we'll be up for any questions that you have. So please feel free. And if you want to come up and write down some questions as well, we have some paper here. So make sure you grab some food, have some drinks, and then we'll get started. So Marshall, we're ready for the first question. All right. Okay. And this is to, all of our questions are going to be for our, all of our panelists. Feel free to respond. Okay. Um, our first question that we curated here is, what are some of the top causes for homelessness? So, can you guys hear me? There, there we go. go. Okay. So, um, when we talk about homelessness, we really have to think of it not as one thing, but as many different things. Um, because there's different types of people and different populations that become homeless. Um, if, for example, in our particular work with families, it looks very different than if you're serving a single man or a single woman. Um, everything from how we help them become rehoused to how they became homeless in the first place. But I think the thing that you could say universally across all of the populations is that a lack of housing, sustainable housing and affordable housing for people is the number one thing in our community right now that's causing homelessness for all of the populations. Okay, Commissioner Wood. Um, I would just echo the, that. The fact of the matter is we have an increasingly unaffordable market and that's caused by a confluence of things from uh, local land use restrictions preventing us from building the supply of housing we need to meet the demands of folks living in this community uh, to the lack of investment and focus on, uh, or enough investment and focus in affordable housing uh, and our local, regional, state, and federal government. Um, it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, one of the things I think we're really blessed here in West Michigan is that we are a very well programmed and resourced area. Um, you know, if you look at our community compared to others, the sheer number of, of nonprofits, housing organizations, advocacy groups that are around for a city of, or for a region of our size is, is really amazing. But even if we're still struggling in that regard, that means to tell me we have to be even wider in our advocacy efforts, not just locally, but at the state level and federal level, uh, if we're going to tackle this crisis in an effective way. All right, Mr. White. Um, I would say it's a couple of things. Um, there's actually there's this huge host of list of things that would be uh, contributing factors to um, homelessness and uh, affordable housing. But I would say probably the top two are um, an overall economic um, reshift, I guess would say, because if you look at what it takes for someone to be able to afford a house today, it's drastically different than what it was, say, 15, even 20 years ago. Um, you've got uh, multiple sources of, of income. You have to have multiple family members working in order to uh, sustain the same household that they may have sustained, you know, five. 10 years ago, uh, and that trend doesn't seem to be stabilizing or, or, or changing. We talk about um, the flourishing economy, but I bump into people every day who are saying, okay, if it's, if it's flourishing, 
where is it flourishing at because I'm not seeing it. Mm -hmm. um, and those are a lot of the people that I think um, Steve and I serve in, the, in our everyday work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's probably the biggest issue because when you talk about affordability, it's always relative to whatever someone's income is. Uh, and so um, that's, that can be a shifting term. Uh, as Judge Kelly mentioned, you know, uh, what's affordable in Grand Rapids is completely different than what's affordable in L.A. or yeah. New York. Um, and if people, you take what our prices are in Grand Rapids and compare them to what someone is in New York and they'd be all over the most expensive thing we have in Grand Rapids. Yeah. So, so I think it's all relative. So I, think, I, I would say that's probably the number one thing. Uh, and maybe number two would be um, awareness and the willingness to care. Um, I, I know that from what I see a lot in, in my industry is that people care when you can bring it to their front door and you can make, it, make them aware of it. But oftentimes, people aren't aware, and so if, it's not, if it doesn't affect you, it's not a real problem. And so um, as we talk about you know, homelessness or affordability, um, if we don't know somebody personally who's affected by that, it's really kind of a non-factor. I think that's a really powerful statement because one of the things that Marshall and I talked about is there's some folks that are very aware of this issue and others that really don't have that lens of even knowing that's an issue in our community. So hopefully one of the things today is not only bringing the awareness to this, right, to a broader sense, that's why we're here today, but also talk about solutions. So um, Wendy, I was wondering if you could give us your thoughts on the causes as well, please. Sure, I definitely agree with what everyone has said so far. I think affordability of housing is the, the key issue here. Um, one thing that I would add to what Mr. White was saying was that income has not kept the pace of the housing um, rates that we've seen locally. And even though we've had a change to the state minimum wage and you know we're working toward that increase, um, the next increase coming in 2020, um, even those rates are not going to allow for a household income that's going to be, um, that's going to put that family or that individual in a position of being able to purchase a new home. Um, on average, you know, when we think about our household expenses, housing should never cost more than about 30% of our income. And yet we're seeing that the rental rates and home purchase um, opportunities are well above that that percentage for most families, most individuals, um, whether they're single income and going into you know a single home, or whether they're um, multiple income or a single parent with multiple children or um, any of those types of things. So th throughout Kent County, we see that almost 40% of our population is not making enough in their household wages to be able to afford their basic needs. And, and of course, the key factor in those basic needs is affordable housing, is, is the ability to maintain either their purchase and mortgage or their rental. Um, the other thing that I, I want to kind of tag on to that is that when we talk about the root causes of homelessness, we also have to recognize, as Cheryl was saying, that homelessness looks very different in different situations. And so when we're thinking about some of those causes of homelessness, it might be a temporary situation where someone was laid off or where um, there's been a medical bill or a car repair or something like that that, that has caused a disruption in that individual's um, home situation. But there also might be changes in um, what that individual or what that family is going through in their mental health, 
in their medical conditions. Um, it may be, especially for individuals who are new to the community or not well connected in the community, it may be that inhibition that goes along with reaching out and connecting with services. And so that lack of awareness that was talked about is really important as well because we need to be able to connect with people and build relationships with neighbors in order for those neighbors to build sustainability within the community. All right, thank you, Wendy. Let's talk about, so we talked about the causes. What can we do to be proactive about those causes throughout our, you know, our everyday lives? So I would say a couple things. Um, the first is that I think we need to change and shift our priorities. Um, I, you know, we all are very comfortable investing in and giving money to those who really need it. You know, our judgment around who needs it, who's the most vulnerable, who's the most in need. And sounds funny coming from a shelter director, but typically that comes uh, and the heartstrings are tugged when you talk about shelter. Mm -hmm. But if we can shift our focus and we can start talking about prevention and we can start investing in spaces, especially related to families, when these families are just starting to have a crisis, when these kids are just starting to experience this toxic stress that's impacting them, we can make a huge impact, huge impact, lifelong impact for a very small portion of the dollars we spend after the fact once they've become homeless. So I think really prioritizing um, prevention is key. Everything from eviction prevention, you know, to um, family stabilization work and investing in those services up front. Um, and, and that's where I think we're gonna see the biggest shift. Um, and the more we talk about it and the more we share that information with other people, recognizing um, those needs is gonna be the biggest change and the biggest impact we could have. Commissioner Wooden. Yeah, so there's, there's a number of policies that could be implemented to help make our housing more affordable, which in turn can prevent more and more people uh, from falling into the trap of homelessness. And, you know, at the local level, as mentioned before, often uh, we have land use restrictions that prevent our ability to build a supply to meet the demands. And frankly, it's an understandable concern that neighborhoods have. You know, in, in the city of Grand Rapids last year, there was a debate about zoning and how zoning impacts supply. And on one side, I, I work for an affordable housing provider. Uh, and on the other side, I sat on a neighborhood association board. And prior to that discussion, I felt that a lot of land use restrictions was tied to nimbyism, that idea of we don't want it in our backyard. And that's still certainly prevalent. Uh, but there were people in those discussions who had been fervent supporters of the work of the multiple affordable housing nonprofits and building affordable housing that had concerns about this. So it tells me that that conversation needs to need to occur with a lot more nuance and a lot more understanding and a lot more empathy. Um, we also need to look at this regionally because housing prices do not exist within our city limits. Uh, a home value across 28th Street that might be in the city of Grand Rapids is not much different than the home price on the other side of 28th Street in Kentwood or on either side of the Kentwood-Wyoming boundary. Um, and that means Kent County needs to play a role. And, uh, you know, unfortunately last December, um, I don't like bringing it up, but it had happened. There was a vote to end our Kent County Land Bank. I had yet to take office. I had just gotten elected to my first term in November. Our, my co-commissioners, Jim Talon and Betsy Melton, were there, and they were ferociously defending uh, our, our land bank and uh, the need for that service. Um, but the fact of the matter is, uh, we're going to feel the effect of that uh, for years to come, because the services that they can provide are very unique. And while the city of Grand Rapids was able to partner with our state land bank to fill the, that gap of services. We know that there's an affordable housing 
There are affordable housing needs in Kentwood, in Wyoming, in every corner of our county, including uh, areas you might not think. And so uh, we need to th look at this regionally and find regional solutions to the problem. And then lastly, um, state and federal. You know, our state government is the enabler of what locals can do. And so for years, the state has taken away the rights of cities and counties and townships and communities to implement local policies that can make this change. Uh, that, needs to ch that needs to stop. We need to empower local communities to create tailor-made policies that can implement the change they need. And finally, at the federal level, uh, for years we have defunded investment in the creation of affordable housing from uh, limiting availability of Section 8 to defunding the Home Investment Partnership and lowering the amount of community development block grants. Uh, dollars that if used effectively, and we've seen them used effectively here in Grand Rapids in Kent County and in Kentwood, if we had those dollars, we can make a huge impact. But for too many years, uh, we've devalued that priority. It goes back to the values and the need to place that value in a higher level, which is going to require those conversations. Right. I think you guys have hit it right on the head. I, if, if there was anything that I would point to, and I, I go to the priorities relate to caring. And I think that's part of the biggest challenge is if, if people don't, we prioritize and we put our money in the places that we believe are important to us. So, you know, and, and again, I'm not a politician, so I, you know, <laughs> forgive me if I say something that's, you know, off color, not written, black guy says off color, okay. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but the reality is, um, you know, if we, if we focused and put our money where our priorities truly were, we would pay our teachers more. We would pay our, our service providers and our, provide, and our, our, our um, firemen and our policemen more. We don't do that because we don't really, they're a necessary utensil. It's like knives and forks. We use them when it's necessary, but you know, we work around them when it's not. Um, and I think that that caring piece you know, filters itself into a number of issues. It talks about state, local, federal policies. It talks, it talks about the fact that we need to focus and put our dollars where we think that makes sense. And again, not having that nimbyism because um, while we think it doesn't affect us in our comfortable, you know, suburban or urban home, uh, it will at some point because it just doesn't stay contained to, you know, the, the places that it's most prevalent right now. So it, it's one of those things where we just have to care. And if we care, we'll know that by you know, prioritizing where we put our money, where we put our votes, where we put our policy. Speaking as a politician, that actually was pretty good. So good work. <laughs> <laughs> I've been around you too <laughs> And Wendy, do you have thoughts on being proactive on the causes? Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, what my peers here have said has been spot on. Um, uh, providing supports before someone gets in the situation of, of being at risk of homelessness is extremely important. Um, addressing the income gap is extremely important. And prioritizing where we're putting our spending and how we're creating policy, all of those things are going to be um, additionally as important. Um, one kind of uh, tangent that I want to go on for just a second, so forgive me, um, this idea of putting dollars toward education I think is such a huge piece of this because when we look at our criminal justice system, a lot of the individuals who find themselves in the criminal justice system, in our state, uh, in our local jails and in our state prisons, those are individuals who didn't have an opportunity to earn a higher income who found themselves in a point of crisis and oftentimes that's because they haven't had the investment through their education. So in the state of Michigan we put about uh, we put less than $12,000 per student per year into education 
but we also pay $36,000 per year to house people in our prisons. And so if we're shifting our priorities and, and putting those dollars into education and helping support those who are growing up in our communities, then we're providing them more opportunities for gainful employment and we're reducing the prison population overall. And again, when those, when those individuals are released from the prison system, where are they going to go? Because now with their record and with a lot of, the, um, a lot of what we're seeing, especially in rental properties, there's a challenge in getting people into housing and, and really in our system, um, implementing the fair housing rules. And that's such a great point and maybe Judge Kelly at the end of this can speak to the criminal justice reform and the movement that's going on and some of the expungement because that is such a burden for even people getting jobs again, right? Or a company taking a chance on them and, and we have to figure out a way to get people to be productive citizens again and remove some of those barriers, right? Because that's just feeding into that problem. So great point. And I agree, and I think we have to also talk about who those inmates are, right? That was one of the things that Emily and I researched is one in seven of the youth who are homeless are African-American or of color. So we have to also be very specific in knowing the populations who are really affected by this, and it's usually the marginalized communities. Um, and speaking of that, so we've talked a lot about the state, the federal, uh, these bigger organizations. What can the average citizen do to help homelessness? That's our next question. So um, when I think of the way that we, the citizens, can, can impact this and change this, I think that's where the solution's gonna come from. It's gonna come from the private sector. When I think of you investing your time and your talents and your energy um, and your money, it's really not just coming to the places where homelessness is happening, but it's doing things in the community around the real estate you own, the businesses that you run, and your talent there on innovation, looking for really crazy cool housing innovation models that we're seeing in other communities around the country, and how do we bring those here? How do we invest our time um, as system developers, system engineers, to apply and bring some resources to how we address this in a prevention space? Um, think broad and don't think you know typical philanthropy coming to and serving someplace, but doing it in your place of business, doing it in your community circles, that's where the investment is really gonna take root and that's where the change is gonna happen. So I think in the end there, you know, I'll go back to what I've talked before. Advocacy is key here, but advocacy can take multiple forms. It doesn't just have to be showing up to a city commission meeting or a county commission meeting or writing your representative or your congressperson. Um, it could be talking to your neighbor. Because in the end, changing perceptions about housing is what's going to fix this issue. Um, you know, there is this growing, it's not necessarily a movement because it's not as formalized, but there's this growing, uh, uh, conversation called Yimby, yes in my backyard. And it's the idea that we can and should becoming more comfortable with having more neighbors living around us and having different kinds of neighbors living around us. And part of the reason I think that that's important is that uh, when the conversations we had last year in the city of Grand Rapids around zoning and land use as it affects the dent as it affects density, as I mentioned, it was much more complex than I thought it was going to be going into that conversation. And maybe that was a little youthful naivete, but uh, it was the fact that uh, it taught me that you really can't meet nimbyism with anger. You have to meet it with a degree of with empathy, uh, because it is very complex. And I think if you meet it with empathy and you can start to change people's perceptions, 
by, by validating the concern, but, but pushing it in an understandable way, we could start to move the dial on the general consensus, which policy only follows after. How do I follow that, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> Please. Well, I'm going to say the thing that I've always told my kids. Lead with your best self. It starts with each of us as individuals, and you lead with your best self. So every person you talk to, every person you engage, every person you encounter, lead with your best self and give them the, um, it's old, sounds so, so cliche, um, treat them the way you would want to be treated. And, and I say that to say this. Um, it's, it's similar to, there, there's a, a book that I'm reading that's really interesting, talks about being an anti-racist versus being a racist. And I'm really gonna go off center here, but, um, and, and the purpose is they talk about either you are a part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And when you hear somebody say, okay, I'm not a racist, okay, that means that you're not actively participating in racism, but what are you doing to be an anti-racist? And that's really kind of the question I think individuals have to ask themselves when it comes to their communities. Every single thing we do, what are we doing on a daily basis to be anti anything we don't like? If it's you know anti um, uh, uh, you know, um, negative affordable housing or, or anti NIMBYism, what are we doing in our role to change that? Is it the neighbors we meet? Is it the people we meet at the gas station or the grocery store when we go to church? It's that kind of interaction that we take the personal responsibility to change perception, behavior, accepted, accepted um, vitriol. We have to stop that and confront it where it is and do that on a daily basis, and that's how change starts. I, I don't know big systematic. I mean, that's really the culmination of everything, but when you talk about individual change, I think that's where you have to go. And Wendy, what advice would you give average average folks and how we can help change this? Uh, one, one thing that I really would promote is um, supporting small business and supporting neighborhood development. Um, I think, you know, we've seen some fantastic economic development across our community, but one of the things that we sometimes fail to address is how is that supporting people living in those neighborhoods? Um, or is it driving people to toward more um, separation and more disconnection. So I think being able to look at neighborhood development and small business support in a way that really helps people to access the things that are most important for them um, within their own neighborhood is a huge piece of that. And that's part of what builds that relationship. It's part of what builds that level of understanding and empathy that's so important. I think another aspect um, is being able to um, look at the condition of our homes and our neighbors' homes and say, that's not something that's going to drive us into a new development situation. That's going to give us motivation to invest in our own homes and in our in our neighbors. Um, we see in some areas of the of the county where um, the housing situation itself is causing health problems for those residents. And so, if we're not taking the time to invest in the um, the remediation of those properties, we're going to see extremely high health bills because those families are going to be um, impacted from 
their environment, but we're also going to see this migration outward from where those homes are and people um, not wanting to reside in neighborhoods where they're seeing the, the physical environment of the homes deteriorate. So we need to kind of look at one another and say, how can we help one another? How can we be neighborly in that sense that we were going to spend some time helping others repair their roof or we're going to um, invest in the local contractor, the, the neighborhood contractor who is um, doing some home repairs throughout the community. Um, I, I think that that concept of local investment in small business and developing in areas where we're not pushing people out, um, but we're bringing more people together, and then really paying attention to the housing environment and the physical health of the, ho of the home and the residents. Thank you, Wendy. Well, our next question, so we talked about everyday folks, right? Everyday citizens like you and I. Um, so how can our leaders or people in power promote education and advocacy for homelessness, right? So Emily and Commissioner Wood, and we, you both have done that, right, by engaging in community conversations. But Commissioner Wooden, as you said, we can write to our representatives, but what do we put in that? What do we ask them for? Uh, what, do we, what should we be putting fire under them to do to advocate for homelessness? So I was about to say we should actually have Wendy start because we've been having us start at the right. front. So yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna, gonna I'm gonna be a politician and punt, but I'm punting so that they can okay. get the start. Okay, punt uh, to Wendy. So you, you mean that I sounds good. Say, I can't say ditto anymore. <laughs> Dang it. Go Wendy. I want to be able to say ditto to you and be inspired okay. by what you say. All right, great. Um, so when it comes to uh, local leadership, I think one of the things that we really need to do is encourage um, not only more conversations like this, but encourage local leadership to um, build relationships with those individuals who are experiencing a, a home security risk. Um, and as even as Cheryl mentioned earlier, being able to connect with them and, and look at innovations around housing stability. Um, you know, the, the innovations don't just come from leadership. Uh, they come from those of us who are um, just talking with one another on a daily basis and, and trying to figure out um, where we can lend our talents or our ideas. Um, so I think getting involved in those neighborhood, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations or small group conversations can make a big impact. Um, another part of that is um, stepping out of our comfort zone when it comes to advocacy and really taking the time to not just write a letter to um, a local elected official or to a state legislator asking for change in zoning or in some of the state regulations around housing development, but also giving that opportunity for that connection to be more about the personal story um, and to, um, to identify that there are people in the community who are living these experiences, who have a voice that um, that needs to be heard. And so how do we step out of the way of those individuals and help them elevate their voice and help them be the ones who are testifying in front of um, you know, a, a hearing on proposed legislation or who are providing support and, um, and storytelling when it comes to the state and local budgeting process and, and those types of things. So, James, you have the unique opportunity of giving Commissioner Wooden some, some feedback, so <laughs> might you have some uh, thoughts for him? Um, so, specifically, what was the question again? Um, so, let's see. How can our leaders or people in power promote education advocacy for homelessness? Hmm. You know, that's a, that's a really interesting one. I'm not sure I, I have a... Um, 
a good answer for that. Um, I see Steve all the time, so I guess when I think about it, I'll just tell him. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'll defer to you on okay, that. That's a, okay, perfect. Commissioner Wooden. Uh, well, first to Wendy, ditto. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, I, I will, writing on what's been talked about, I will share this story about some effective advocacy we have seen at the county level. Um, and it's not reached the level yet, but it's, it's getting there. And it's talking about housing security when it comes to the lead health risk. Uh, we in Kent County have a lead health risk. Uh, unlike our friends in Flint, it's less by the, uh, our pipes and the quality of our water and the safety of our water. It's more the paint in our homes, uh, especially investor-owned properties, landlords who may not even live in this state uh, who have failed to upkeep their homes in a safe way, and children are uh, being negatively affected by it. Uh, we have had uh, a number of times parents, grandparents, mothers, um, aunts uh, coming to our commission meeting and sharing their personal story about their children, their loved ones. And they turn their tragedy into power uh, by mobilizing leaders to understand the severity of the problem. And as a result, the county has finally started investing in lead health prevention, hiring people in our health department to tackle this issue especially. Um, we have yet to get to the, the hopeful goal, which is that the county will actually take a role in lead remediation and in investing in lead remediation because of the, the benefit it could have. Um, or also holding those repeat offenders uh, who are landlords who have multiple, who have multiple incidences of uh, putting children into danger because they failed to uh, remediate their homes themselves, holding them accountable. Uh, because if we don't hold folks like that accountable, there's not going to be any uh, long-term uh, liability protection, um, or rather, our landlords will not see the consequences of, of, uh, of an action. So uh, that is a great example. So bring your personal story, because the personal is not just political, it is powerful. Cheryl, do you have any additional thoughts to add? So I think our leaders need to connect the dots. And what I mean by that, and I'm talking about family homelessness specifically, is that if I were to tell you the information and the stats around the families we're serving, more than 80% of the families that come into my shelter have income. These are hardworking families, working parents in our community. So when connecting the dots, I want you and me and the rest of our citizens to understand the impact that this issue is really having on our community. Not because we see people on the street. You don't see my families on the street. When we go out in January to count people, you're not gonna find one family out on the street. You're not gonna see them at the exit ramps. The hidden face of homelessness are kids. And the impact that homelessness has is profound. The American Academy of Pediatrics came out in 2012. They made a huge policy statement again last September talking about the toxic stress, brain and neuro and health impacts on kids of experience in homelessness. Significant loss of learning capacity, onset of behavioral health disorders like ADD and other you know, behavioral issues, and long-term health disease like diabetes. So if you measure the financial impact alone of those things on kids who are experiencing an episode of homelessness right now, and if we don't mitigate that and stop it, get them off the street quickly and get them housed quickly, we have exponential millions and millions of dollars financial impact in our schools, in our health system. It affects every single one of us, every school district, and every county or community has been represented in our shelter. 
no community or school districts immune. So if we don't start connecting the dots, the financial dots, the health impact dots, businesses, you know, how do you find workers to come into your business? If you're not protecting these kids and their brain and neurodevelopment right now, you're not gonna have a workforce you can count on down the road. So by connecting the dots, I think we all start to get how it impacts us. Wow, <laughs> all right. Um, so this is you all get to brag a little bit, but a good brag. So what are you all actively doing within your roles, uh, your respective roles, to combat this issue? What's a new initiative or something new and fresh that you all are doing? Wendy, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, in your role, what are you doing to combat this issue in our communities? So this is kind of, um, this is a fun point for me because I think um, interconnectedness of systems is so important in preventing homelessness and um, that's the the key focus of my role um, the essential needs task force um, as as Marshall indicated in um, in the little bio earlier um, works in five areas of basic needs and in each of those areas um, we see those we see the coalition of end, to end homelessness is one of those focus areas but in all the other four areas those are precursors to um, symptoms of homelessness and so when we see people who are experiencing uh, multiple shutoff notices of their utilities or who are struggling with their transportation and being able to get to work or being able to get their children to childcare, um, when we're seeing households who are utilizing uh, food pantries at a higher rate or, um, or are struggling with their physical and mental health because of the lack of nutrition that they're receiving. Those are all indicators that um, someone, that that individual or that household may be leading um, kind of down the path toward homelessness or toward housing insecurity. So when we bring agencies together, and we know that each, each nonprofit in our community has a, has a unique mission, has a unique area of focus that they, that they are centering their efforts around, and that's important. We absolutely need to be uh, putting our strength into those crisis intervention moments, but we also need to be thinking about, as a systems level, how are we considering the root causes that are leading to homelessness and identifying people early on so that they don't find themselves in that moment of crisis down the road. Um, so we're bringing together um, you know, nonprofits, we're bringing together some uh, local officials around um, changing policy issues, and sometimes that's institutional policy. You know, We talked a little bit earlier about the challenges of someone with a criminal record being hired in at an organization. A lot of those conversations that we're having with businesses are around their wages that they're offering and around their hiring practices and whether or not they're willing to shift some of their existing policies and hiring to bring in people who may have um, a background that they're not necessarily comfortable with, but to recognize that those individuals are very hard workers and that they have served their sentence and are ready to be um, part, of the, part of the business community and ready to be part of the stably housed community as well. Those are definitely closely linked aspects. Another thing that we need to do is ensure that when we're looking at a system we're, I'm sorry, when we're looking at a crisis symptom, that we're not just looking at that person as that problem, but we're identifying that there are systems around that person that push them into that direction, and it's not about their character, it's not about their personality, it's not about their value, it's about the system as a whole, and how do we break down those root causes, um, especially when it comes to systemic racism? How do we identify that we all have contributed in some way or another toward the perpetuation of systemic racism. And if we're not taking the time to step back and say, what can I actively do to change the tide, 
then we're aiding to the perpetuation of that situation. Um, finally, I know I'm going a little bit long, uh, but one other thing that I think we can get involved in um, or that, that ENTF is doing is um, making those connections with community members. So again, talking with individuals who are in those experiences, who have the opportunity to speak their truth and to bring forward their stories, and then finding those connection points and making sure that we're expressing empathy, but we're shifting the power to them. So we're giving them the tools, giving them the, um, we're equipping them with the resources to be able to speak for their situation and to um, express themselves in those decision-making rooms. Thank you so much for that thoughtful answer. And James, I'm wondering if you could uh, speak to Habitat for Humanity. They've done, they're, I mean, they're really doing some incredible, amazing, innovative items in our community. I'd, I'd love for you to share some of that with, with our uh, guests here today. Sure. Um, in fact, one of the things that we're doing at Habitat, uh, I sit on the executive um, board um, for Habitat. And one of the things we've done, and you've probably gotten a lot of um, uh, publicity around was Plaza Roosevelt, which is this really unique uh, collaboration of um, homeowners, uh, rental, um, medical, and that we've got an expansion of the um, health services, the Clinica Santa Maria uh, health services that are there. They're bringing a pharmacy in, something that hadn't been in that area for a long time. Collaboration with both arts, because uh, there's a collaboration with the arts and community, and um, as well as the education. It's the first brand new high school that's been built in Grand Rapids in what, 20 years? Um, that's a part of that collaboration. And so, uh, as well as um, the common space, which is gonna be a nice park there that uh, will be actually community owned. Uh, so that's one of the things that, that they're doing, which is a really unique um, concept, uh, completely out of the norm of what Habitat for Humanity has been used to doing, because typically we've just been doing, you know, 20, 30 houses a year, uh, doing great work, but in, in using philanthropic and, and, and other program dollars to do that. But this was a kind of a leap of faith uh, that took place about three or four years ago, and the idea was we've got to have this entire kind of community collaborative this um, community development really starts with more than just doing one element of housing or one element of, of uh, what our, our existence is. So it, it encompasses education, health outcomes, it encompasses the housing piece. Housing is a really big piece of that. And it's also more than just you know, rental housing or home ownership. It's, it's a, a, having a multitude of um, places where people can intersect and be um, helped and housed and, and supported at various levels where they are within our community. So that's one of the things that we're doing in Habitat. So. Thank you so much. And Commissioner Wooden. Yeah. Um, so riding on that, through my day job, I actually get to be a part of the uh, small part in the Plaza Roosevelt Initiative because Dwelling Place is developing uh, the affordable rental housing that's going to be on the site, uh, where I get to work with James not only as a board member from Habitat, but uh, Sinair is the investor uh, funding those two deals uh, for us. Um, and you know, I think riding on his comments, uh, and on uh, Cheryl's, uh, if we're going to connect the dots on how housing impacts other things, we should also be connecting the dots on how housing must be connected to other things. Mm -hmm. right. And uh, the Plaza Roosevelt Initiative is a great example of that because it is so multifaceted. It does make it a little messier, a little more confusing, a little more emotional, and that's good. Um, that's, if that's the price we have to pay to make an impact, then so be it. Um, you know, through my day job, I have the pleasure of working to build new affordable housing in our community, which is fun and exciting. Um, 
But in, in that time, the three years I've spent there, I've gotten to know more and more and more about how well-programmed this community really is. Um, you know, we frankly rival even the city of Detroit and Southeast Michigan in the services and programming that we offer to not only build affordable housing, but help uh, provide housing for those who need it. Um, but even in that context, we're still struggling, uh, which tells me yet again that this goes back to how we are going to advocate effectively to give us the resources. And by us, I don't mean providers, I mean our community, the resources they need to move the dial um, from tackling uh, systemic racism and how that has uh, been so pervasive in our housing discussion, uh, to tackling nimbyism, to tackling the lack of priorities when it comes to how we fund and the tools that we provide. Um, you know, and that to me has been the lesson I've had in my uh, professional experience in housing. Perfect, and Cheryl. So in my day job, and my night job, and my weekend job at Family <laughs> Promise, um, I'm really proud of the innovation that we've had around shelter and housing for families. We have served over 1,000 kids through September with shelter at Family Promise here in our community. 1,000 kids already, and that wasn't even through the end. So we've done that with some incredible partnerships. The first is the Fulton Manor partnership with Kids Food Basket, Family Promise, United Way, and Holland Home. We took advantage of a building that was going to be empty. We had over 120 families on a waiting list for shelter at the time, this time last year. And we were able to use that space for a, in a very cost-effective way for this year to shelter families. And we will have had more than 300 families go through just that location alone. Um, so that was a, a huge win. That shelter came up um, with ICCF's help within 10 weeks, which is just incredible. Um, the second is the innovation around housing. So we've launched a shared housing program, um, partnering with United Methodist House, 311, Well House, and a couple units that we own ourselves, and putting in place a structure where single moms with kids can co-lease a home um, and we have some um, model and structure around that that helps them navigate that process successfully. We're hoping that we can launch that with private landlords uh, within about another nine months as a model to support families and create some more housing availability. Um, you know, our families almost primarily rent and that market has really um, been in some ways disassociated from the home ownership and the home um, purchase market here in Grand Rapids for the last few years. It's rising much more quickly. Um, and then the last is that we were able to partner with nine other nonprofit leaders to form a coalition and um, drive an effort to have our K-Connect, which is our collective impact organization here in Grand Rapids, do some work this past year. And I think it will continue going forward for a, a little bit of time here around this issue. And we've been able to identify with that with many, many of our community leaders, private um, business owners, um, and other nonprofits that we have um, an unbalanced and a overly represented um, you know, population of families of color in our homeless space. How is that, um, how are they being impacted and how is the housing market structured in a way that's causing that to happen? as well as the need for different types of housing, but how does that impact our companies, the wages that the families are getting paid, and really into this Alice space that United Way does such a great job in. So those are three areas that I'm really proud of, the work Family Promise has done over the last year or two, um, and, and we're really committed to that going forward. 
Okay, so that is the end of our formal questions. We are going to give each uh, panelist a chance to just give any kind of final thoughts you have or closing thoughts, something that we haven't talked about. Um, is there any volunteer on who would like to go first? Okay, Cheryl, all right. So I have something that was really profound when I learned this a couple years ago and it reshaped the way I thought about homelessness. So there's a fabulous book. If you haven't read it, read it. It's called Evicted. Matthew Desmond wrote it. But during his work um, and the, the study he did during that period of time leading up to writing that book, they statistically figured out that a loss of housing and eviction actually is a causal, root cause, causal agent of poverty. And that really shifted my thinking around housing because we always think that people who are poor or living in poverty become homeless. But actually, eviction and housing markets actually throw people into poverty. And once you go into poverty, the statistics of you or your children who are thrown into poverty ever coming out are minimal. So when we talk about housing, when we talk about getting at root causes, when we talk about solving poverty, we need to think about housing because this is so profound that it's a root cause of poverty for our community. Perfect. Is there anybody I'd like to go next? Okay, Commissioner Wooden. Um, well, for starters, thanks for coming uh, this afternoon. Uh, you could do a lot of things on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, I, for one, usually stay in my pajamas, so uh, I'm sure many of you would have done the same. So uh, thanks for thanks for getting here. Um, because, frankly, uh, it shows how much you value this, uh, and that speaks a lot to your character. Uh, thanks to Emily and Marshall for hosting this. Um, you know, being a city commissioner is a part-time job, and the fact that she's treating it almost like a full-time job is, uh, I shouldn't say almost, she's treating it like a full-time job, is uh, really shows the, the, her commitment to service. And Marshall, the fact that you're still in college and you're doing this just tells me, uh, I can't wait till you get that degree to see the amount of work you'll be able to do when you're not having to go to school. Um, so the one thing I'll say is this. Oh yeah, we can applaud that. The one thing I'll say is this. Um, this is fixable. This is something we can do. This is achievable. Um, even if it seems out of reach, it is achievable. It's measurable, exactly. Something like this is measurable, and if it's measurable, it's achievable. And uh, you know, I think in the end, what I would call upon you to do is to recreate this conversation in a one-on-one -on -one with someone in your neighborhood, with someone in your family, with someone who needs to have a little bit of education. We all do in different things. Yeah. So have that conversation. Uh, because in the end, uh, the consensus that we need to bring about housing, which is possible, uh, is really what's going to change policy. And so that's my ask of you is to, to find that one person and have that one conversation around this. Thanks for coming out. Thank you, Commissioner. Uh, Wendy or James, any final I thoughts? I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I would echo what uh, Commissioner Wooden has said. And I guess the only thing that I would add to that would be Again, lead with your best self. It starts with you as an individual. And two things that you can do, uh, two books actually I would recommend. Uh, one is called Stamped from the Beginning, uh, which is by uh, Dr. Uh, Kendi. Uh, and it kind of gives you the history of how we got to where we are today. Uh, the second is called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Uh, and it kind of covers the history of housing and housing policy going back as 
pretty much as far as you can as at the beginning of this country. So both of those would give you that education and, and that armor that you need to have those individual conversations that uh, uh, Steve has talked about. Because as you have those conversations and you start to touch people, you're going to um, hit some sensitive areas. Um, but the more, I am a true believer that the more you're educated uh, and the more you can enlighten folks, the more that their natural will will change and they might want to actually care. Because if we care, we put our money behind what we say we, we care about. Um, so I think if you, if you want to do that, that would be my closing thoughts is to lead with that. So. Thank you, sir. And, and Wendy, final thoughts? Yeah, two thoughts. Um, one, I think, um, you know, when we think about those who are experiencing homelessness or who are at risk of experiencing homelessness, um, it's not about their character. Um, a lot of it is about our character as a community. And whether or not we're willing to invest in the changes that are necessary to break down those root causes. Um, so it does require a lot of individual reflection and a lot of conversation with those other folks who are not exposed to this conversation on a regular basis. Um, and I think the other aspect of it is how do we shift community power? How do we move out of people's way and equip people? It's not about charity. It's not about uh, putting a Band-Aid on a situation. It's about digging deep and moving aside so that other people can share their ideas and can be involved in policy making. Um, and, and really shift the power from those who are privileged to um, our neighbors who have experienced much more than we have. And there's, there's one thing I'd like to, that I've seen that's worked really well or that I've been trying to work on too. In Kentwood, there's this business called Valley City Electronic Recycling. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've heard about this organization, but man, they are fantastic because their CEO talks about hiring returning workers. So folks getting out of jail and how do they educate them? How do they work with them a little bit differently? And he has been a huge proponent, I think, in giving people another chance. And so I always love to talk about great businesses that are doing the hard work and doing the right things for all of our community. And then even more so, you can take that to wherever you work, right, and say, hey, what to our HR, you know, you must know someone in HR, hey, what are our, our policies on hiring returning workers, right? What, what, how do you, how do we deal with this as a company? And, and if they don't, right, that's your opportunity to say, hey, here's a company that's actually getting it right, here's what they think, and here's what they're doing, and this might help us create our own policies around returning workers, right? Anybody can do this at your company. So it's even, it's even small things like that that can really make big changes for our whole community. So just food for thought. So, and I would, if I can, I would add to that, Emily, that um, it's not just about the initial hire, but a lot of, a lot of companies have really strict attendance policies. And when someone is struggling with their transportation or struggling with their childcare, or maybe they do have a utility shutoff notice that they need to take care of, or they've been um, given an eviction notice and they need to go to court and, and have those conversations, how are we as employers, how are our businesses treating those individuals when they're in that point where they need to deal with some really serious situations? And we're saying, this is your third absence in the last six months, so you're fired. We can't accommodate you. We can't help you with this situation. So being able to step in as peers and as employers and say, um, we know that you come here as a whole person, 
and so we're willing to work with you and ensure that you're stable in your employment because if your employment ends up suffering then it's just a snowball effect from there thank you wendy well we'd like to open it up to any of you all in the audience for questions all right gary come on up or oh, yeah Help us understand the dimensions of this problem. Are there any reliable statistics about the number of homelessness in Kent County or Greater Grand Rapids or any, anything concrete about that? Sure. Um, you know, numbers are always interesting because everyone has a different way of looking at the numbers. Uh, what I will say is in 2018, there were over 10,000 individuals who were in touch with the homelessness response system in some manner. So for about 8,000 of those individuals, that meant that they were experiencing literal homelessness. So they were um, staying in a shelter, they were um, coming out of a, a public institution and not having a place to go after that. Um, and, and for an additional 2,000, then they were in a situation where there was a time-limited um, stability to their housing. So they had received their eviction notice and they had 14 days to exit, or they had been in contact with the homelessness system um, and had been on a waiting list, and then maybe they were lucky enough to be able to stay with a friend or family member. So when we're looking at Kent County as a whole, um, we're looking at just over 8,000 individuals who experience literal homelessness and another 2,000 who have some connection to homelessness. I can also add just in the shelter space, we have over 123 family, or 123 in shelter tonight, and then we have another 83 who are on the waiting list for shelter currently who are staying, cars, other places, and that's just in that like really crisis literal space right now. And that's families, not people. Thank you for the question. What other questions do we have? Can you step up here, sir? Thank you for coming today. My name is DeAndre Jones. I just got a question. Um, as far as homelessness, what do you think about renewable energy powering uh, homes uh, or housing projects? And what do you feel, um, how big does um, sustainability, as um, far as wages, how big does that play in homelessness? So I can get things rolling on that one. Um, so before I actually worked professionally in the housing sector, I worked for, <coughs> excuse me, the Trade Association for Renewable Energy Companies. And what I'll tell you is the potential from supporting an industry that is one of the fastest growing employers in the country uh, is huge. Um, you know, now I believe one of the fastest growing high wage jobs in this country is wind farm technician. Now, when it comes to citing things in, uh, within affordable housing, can't really put a wind farm on, on top of a building. But, um, you know, I could tell you that we are working on seeing how we can install solar uh, panels on our buildings to offset part of our power. Um, it is a little bit messier because, um, you know, nonprofits or industry, uh, entities like ours that build housing are not directly eligible for uh, the tax credit that helps bring down the cost of, of solar panels. Uh, but we luckily we've got folks like uh, James at Sinair who are might be willing to buy those credits from us. Uh, hopefully, hopefully they will. Um, but then on top of that, um, you know, there's been a larger conversation about the split incentive, because often residents are paying for their own utilities, even if it's a some kind of um, government-assisted or income-based housing. And so, what what can be done to ensure that 
the issuers of those grants and those dollars are incentivizing developers who are not just the nonprofits, because for-profit developers also provide affordable housing if sure. it's financed. Mm -hmm. How we can incentivize them to care about that. Um, you know, Mishta, when they allocate resources, often say, we want you to be lead silver. Uh, what else can we do to ensure that they are prioritizing bringing utility costs down for them so that someone's not going to be pushed out of their house because of a, uh, an inability to pay a utility bill? So. And the wage piece of that is huge. So wages are so tied to this for families when we think about it. So when I started in 2009, average two-bedroom rent we could easily find for $450 a month anywhere in our county. It was super easy um, and, and that was our real housing cost for families. And now what we're seeing is an average rent of about $1,000 a month. The least amount of rent any one of my families has exited in a leased up situation and paid this last year is just over $800 a month. So when I'm looking at their wages, the wages that they made at that time were very comparable to what they're making now. Um, right now we're seeing our families going into jobs that are 12 to $15 an hour, but they're not getting 40 hours a week. And to survive as a single parent with two kids, just basic needs, which are food, transportation, daycare, and housing, you're looking at a need of about $24.75 an hour in our county to be able to afford housing. So look at that gap right there with most of our, our safety net systems cut or gone in those 10 years. So it's just that, you know, that piece of it, if we had those wages and we were investing in our workers in those ways, you know, we would maybe get closer to where the rental market is, but, you know, there would still be a gap. I would also add that um, there, there are weatherization opportunities for homeowners or for renters um, as long as the homeowner will sign off on that opportunity. So um, organizations like uh, Kent County Community Action, um, other, uh, some of the other local nonprofits are able to provide weatherization support to put that home in better condition for their utilities, um, which is a huge help. Um, we know that the large utilities in this area have affordable payment plans. We need to be cautious of those because sometimes what's affordable this month may not be affordable after, your, um, after you've caught up on your arrears in utilities. So we do have to be aware of how those plans are going to work over time. Um, one thing that ENTF is working on is we're um, pu pulling together a conversation with folks who are businesses who are part of the West Michigan Sustainable Business Forum, and we're going to be talking specifically about how um, those for-profit, um, environmentally focused organizations can lend their ideas and their innovation to that idea of um, energy efficiency, environmental sustainability in the home. Um, so we're excited about that opportunity December 9th, in case any of you are interested in that. Uh, we're going to be having some conversation around that experience of um, acquiring energy or utility assistance at, in the home and then talking with those businesses about what innovations could be brought forward for people who are um, living with low income and are seeking to reduce some of their utility costs or simply contribute to um, helping turn the tide on climate change, which is, of course, um, disproportionately impacting people of color. Okay, thank you. And I see Judge Kelly is still in the audience, just in case. Are there other questions? Yes, please, come on up. Thank you so much. Yeah, my name is Hannah. Um, I worked with refugees in the community as a social worker in a nonprofit. Sure. Um, my experience is working as a social worker in refugee resettlement services. 
um, and housing is a big piece um, of that. And I just was wondering more on the, the coalition that you were mentioning, which by the way, Family Promise is an excellent organization. Thank you for the work you do there. Um, if you could talk more about that um, coalition and what you're doing as far as the housing market, um, because from my perspective, the problem isn't the population group, the problem is the housing market. And what we've seen in the gap is not, not the problem of wages, it's the problem of the cost of living. So if, if you guys can maybe talk about the history of how, has, how have you gone to this point where the cost of living is just so extreme and the community is really lamenting that, that change. Um, and so what are some you know, policies that landlords can be really, if they, if they want to embrace a just landlord policy, how can they be, what are the models that they can be practicing um, and, and what can we propose to those landlords as saying, hey, we realize you want to have just practices, here's an idea. Another example is friends in our community or in our churches who are landlords and say, I can't keep up with this, with the market, I have to rent at this, at this level. Um, so can you talk about that as the problem rather than the people and their experience as the problem? Thank you. All right, thank you for the question, Hannah. Cheryl? So uh, I won't speak as much to the policy, and maybe you guys can jump in there, but um, one of the interesting things as we've been talking about this and the market shift, um, what we started seeing about two and a half years ago is as people were coming into shelter, the home, the flip of the homes, the sale, you know, um, landlords who had owned homes for a very long time, our, our market was ripe and it was an opportunity for them to cash in. A lot of them were retiring. And so they sold big bulk properties, right? 50 units, 30 units, 20 units. And a lot of those units have shifted over to corporate ownership. There are companies in California, in Chicago, other places who are owning the properties. And now you have a corporation, their primary objective is to make a profit, right? Like when once a corporation owns it. So I think that there's a big conversation we can have around policies and things about people who are coming into our community and engaging in buying these homes. Because you're right, you know, once you um, buy a home today at a new price, you pretty much have to double the rent to cash flow the property. So it's not like the landlords are, you know, the, the evil in this. And we work really closely with RPOA. There are landlords who are donating portions of their inventory um, to try to partner with our agencies and work with these families in these very low-income spaces. But I do think there needs to be some accountability our community has to people who are coming into our community and purchasing up our housing here. Yeah. Cheryl makes an excellent point. You know, the fact of the matter is, um, and, you know, for those of you, uh, she referenced the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond. He actually interviewed landlords and property owners and property managers, and they mentioned their own tearing of how they can be competitive while also trying to be an ethical landlord. And the dynamic of having out-of-state, out-of-area landlords uh, and investor partners has changed the market dramatically. And so I think in the form of, of policy, um, some of the ways I think we should be talking about is, uh, you know, when our city in Grand Rapids and other communities I think should have this discussion too, talked about uh, accessory dwelling units. The idea of converting your attic or uh, the top uh, floor of your garage into a rental unit can help us return to that, I guess, community uh, landlord, the hobbyist landlord, the person who their goal is to maybe make some money off of it, but it's not trying to make the same level of profit margins as a corporate investment group that's having to compete with other national corporate investment groups. Um, and then the other part is trying to see what we can do 
to help, you know, as I mentioned before, we're pretty well programmed out when it comes to building new affordable housing. And without a new influx of cash, it's going to be a lot harder to build more. So what can we do locally to help tamper the costs going up? And it's one of the reasons I'm a firm believer that we should be looking at community land trust models and figuring out how we can build pipelines to community land trusts. This is an ownership model where while the homeowner or the landlord might own the building, the land itself is owned by a nonprofit that is community governed. Um, and under that model, we can help try to temper that. Obviously, it's not going to fix everything, but it's a way that we can help put, uh, I wouldn't call it a balance. That's a good way of saying it, a balance on how this is happening. Um, because in the end, it's such a complex thing that one outright policy or outright regulation is not, it's not going to fix it. It's going to be a little bit of everything. So thank you. Interestingly enough, um, I'm going to say something about policy, which is, as the corporate guy here, <laughs> normally doesn't do that. But I think um, it, it goes back to putting our, our emphasis where our priorities are. We have to craft policies that understand all the, the unique details and dynamics of the type of work we do that allow these things to work together so that we could get um, renewable energy credits applied to help bring the cost down of operation, which then becomes a rippling effect to the affordability because you have to charge a certain rent to be able to make the property work. And you can't do that if your cost, your total development costs are so high that, that yeah. you're at this market that you just can't change. So I think in that way you have to appro approach policy that allows these things to work together and so that you get layering and stacking of different yeah. types of resources so that you can bring these costs down. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest things we can do because that starts by going and talking to your local uh, personal representative, your local congressman, your local senator, and making sure, one, they understand what challenges we deal with on a daily basis yeah. uh, and how to make those things work together so that we can bring these costs down. Because if we bring the costs down, we can then bring down the affordability. So. Thank you. And then I think Judge Kelly, you have a comment, sir? I have a comment. Um, a lot of it is supply and demand. Yeah. Uh, Ten years ago when you were talking about the rent was $450 a month, they were also saying sign a year lease. If you stay for a year, you get a free right. month rent. Right. right. <clears throat> because the economy was down. Yeah. People were living at home with their parents or whatever. Now they have uh, jobs. They're out renting in the rental market. And so there's just a supply and demand yeah. situation. Yeah. Uh, and so that's... That's just the way it is. And so the apartment complex that was renting for $450 a month then mm -hmm. is now renting for $1,000 a month. And that gets back to the refugee issue. I remember talking to somebody who said, why do you replace refugees anywhere but Kentwood? <laughs> and they said it's harder and harder to get low rents in Kentwood, and now they're moving further out. But it's, it's, a lot of it is supply and demand. And one other comment that I had is, I talked about how substance abuse and mental health are a cause of the um, uh, housing crisis. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if they don't have stable housing, it's hard to address the mental health and, and substance abuse issues. Yep. And also with that transiency in uh, a community, it's hard in the schools. There's at-risk kids mm -hmm. in the schools because they're constantly moving from Grand Rapids to Kentwood to Wyoming and wherever, and it's, it, it puts the whole school. So it's really a community issue. We might not know somebody who's homeless 
but affects your schools mm -hmm. because those te there's all these kids floating in and floating out, um, and so it's it's a, it's a community issue. And it's, it's it's not there's no silver bullet. It's a holistic right. issue. Thank you, Thank you. Judge Kelly. Kate. Uh, I just want to say thank you to all of you right away. Uh, this has been really, really insightful. Sorry, this has been really insightful. Um, I work with homeless students every day in what I do. Um, last week, we had a student that slept in four beds in five nights. Um, and it's, it's this issue that in Kentwood, is very, it's so ubiquitous, but people don't realize it because it's the people that we interact with every single day. Um, and the, the information that you've shared with us here today is really important, it is really critical for how we deal with this issue, um, talking about the root cause of these things and looking at the root cause analysis of this. Um, you talked about, I think you were talking about Kendi's book, Dr. Mm -hmm. Kendi, when you said being an anti-racist. Mm -hmm. um, and my plug for that is he's gonna be here in December. Um, but yeah, yeah, uh, with that, his new book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Yes. Um, and as I'm thinking about how I interact with families and students here, um, it's not just enough to say that I, we don't like homelessness. It's not enough to just say, we're, we, you know, nobody supports homelessness. How can we take that approach that Dr. Kendi has, how to be an anti-racist, how to be an anti-homelessness advocate? And, and you all have talked about lifting the voices of those that are homeless. Um, what would you say, and we've talked about this and you mentioned the business, um, talking with human resources, but if you could say the best way, give the best way to lift the voices of, of these people in these communities that are homeless, what would you say is the best approach? Because this is really nice mm -hmm. that we're here today, um, but, there, but there are a lot of voices that aren't in this room right now um, that don't have rides to get here. That, that you know, there's so many, it's equity, and it's, it's an issue of equity. Um, what is the best way to lift those voices up so they can actually be heard in a space like this? Uh, I would say support organizations that do outreach. Um, outreach is a really important aspect of resolving homelessness because um, outreach helps connect with individuals who have a difficult time connecting with service resources. Um, and there are two different avenues to do that that I would recommend. Um, There's some great agencies that are partners with the Coalition and Homelessness that have an outreach team, and they're very familiar with the parks, the parking lots, the other um, areas throughout the community where people are spending the night, um, and they typically will have connection points and relationships with those individuals um, and help them access resources on a regular basis. So really supporting those organizations that do outreach is important. Um, the other aspect to that is the school systems. Um, being able to provide support to school systems because in many of our districts, we have um, Kent School Services Network uh, coordinators and teachers and other school staff who are finding, um, who, who are the first point of contact for a family that is experiencing risk of homelessness or hidden homelessness. A lot of these families aren't necessarily coming forward and talking about their situation, um, but you have children who are um, experiencing difficulty concentrating, who are hungry, who may be coming in the same clothes repeatedly. Um, those teachers and school staff are, are often the first point of understanding. And so being able to support those 
schools, um, school staff, the, the Kent School Services Network folks, um, not only with um, material resources, um, but also with um, opportunities for respite. Um, you know, helping to support after school programming and, and other ways that um, take some of that heavy burden off of um, the individuals, the teachers and, and school staff who are, co who are connecting with those families on a daily basis um, because that's, there's a lot of trauma in that as well. Um, so, you know, providing um, a, a thoughtful listening ear um, but also providing contribution to the support that those individuals and, and organizations are doing. And we have to shift the power. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have to shift the power and listen and learn. So, you know, when you're here today and you hear me say less than 10%, it's really less than 7% of the families we've served over the last five years have severe mental illness or sub severe substance abuse issues. They just don't. They have situational anxiety, depression. They go home and they drink wine or do something at night just like we do because they're stressed, because they're homeless. But that's not the cause of their homelessness. They're not getting paid enough to afford housing in our community, period. So if we move aside kind of our preconceived um, thoughts about stereotypes in homelessness, is specifically it's huge for families, and we step aside, we, let, we listen, we let them tell their stories. How did you become homeless? What's causing this? What would fix this for you? You learn so much. And the solutions are simple. They're not complex. It's not rocket science. But we need to step aside, shift the power, listen, and learn. Great. Um, let's do... Uh, what, Cheryl? All right. Um, how about a few more questions, and then we can network. And I'm sure folks will stick around. Um, I saw your hand, then you, then Stephanie. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, actually, mine is not as much a question. I'm I'm piggybacking on what Wendy said um, as far as how much it costs to have a student in juvenile detention, if you will, or in the court systems as opposed to in school. And on the southwest side of the state, which is of course where we are, and you said less than 12%, well please let me really give us the full meaning of it. We get from the state of Michigan in our southeast schools, uh, give or take, it, it's kind of a you know, flowing river, um, around $6,500 per student to educate them, the highest being in, in Kent County being Forest Hills, and I believe they're just at 8,000. Now again, it's fluid. Whereas on the southeast side of the state, they are getting 10, 11, and $12,000 to educate their exact same students that we are here. So you take those numbers, and you add the or you add them up, we could educate so many, many more than the forty thousand dollars. I'm just gonna disagree yeah, with you a little yeah. bit, that it takes to have them in juvenile detention or into the court system. So um, that is something that just absolutely, if you don't talk to anybody else about anything else, we have got to educate our students at a higher level of money available. Hi, um, and I just want to echo to um, how grateful I am that we're having this conversation today. My name is Carol Glanville. I'm a commissioner in Walker. Um, and one of the issues that, um, or one of the things that I could use some help with, well, first, oh, one thing I wanted to mention. You talked, Cade, was it, who was just talking about? Yeah. So um, one of the ways, I think, to easily move this conversation out of this space and get to that really personal connection with people, check with your local um, police department. 
the police officers, there's a resource uh, liaison, you know, community liaison officer. They do things like coffee with a cup or pop with pizza with what, I don't know. They have all these cute little, you know, <laughs> community things they do. And a lot of the people who go to those events are the lower income residents or people who have maybe a bigger need because they tend to know those community liaison officers so they trust them and they will seek them out and go and meet with them and that's how I've gotten to meet some of the people in my community that I wouldn't normally have a connection with and it's that trust piece um, you know I can't just go knock on somebody's door and say hey why are you you know why do you live in this house <laughs> so so you got to find an inn and build that trust but my question to the group was um, is there a warehouse of demographic information that I can or anybody could maybe access? Because we talk about the schools, and I know they're the ones who know, you know, what percentage of free and reduced lunch and things like that that we have in our communities. But, you know, because of FERPA and other privacy laws, in, people can't necessarily get that information. So is there a, a place in Grand Rapids where I can just go and say, hey, in my area, where is a prevalence of lower-income residents? So there's multi-sources, right? You can go to schools, you can go, like, lots of different points. But I will tell you that um, at the K-Connect tables where we've been talking, there's a big conversation and push for a community data collective. And there is a great model that we brought forward that's down in North Carolina. Um, they have addressed all of the privacy issues for schools and HIPAA and DHHS and everything else. They have over 70 sources of data that are pulled in together at UNC and, it, and they can actually identify where families, when they hit certain systems, where they move to, how often they move, how, how they go in and out of different counties there. They can connect in, uh, the dots on health issues related to homelessness, related to age, related to race, you know. So that's something that I think we have a huge opportunity for here in our community to make an investment in that collective, that data collective. And do, we've got really smart universities here, great people here, lots of data. We're all collecting tons of data that's, that has a lot of um, informative capability if we pull it together and if we pay and invest in the analysis of it. And, that, and there's a great model and I think that we should jump all over it. The one thing I will say is, um, you know, data is obviously very important and data does help inform public policy as it should. Uh, but the one challenge I would say in a, any data conversation when it comes to housing is that if the data helped change perceptions on housing and changed minds on housing policy, we wouldn't have this problem. Just to be perfectly blunt, the data's been there. There needs to be more data to find it to help create the best form of policy we can. But if we're looking at data to change people's minds, it's, it's been there right in front of us for decades. So really it's, it's about telling that human story. You know, that, that this is a qualitative data piece that I've shared with others, but um, at, uh, at a celebration for Fair Housing Day at the beginning of spring, uh, there was a woman who came up to me and said, I, I deal with expected mothers. That's my role, I'm a social worker. I had a mother sleeping, nine months pregnant, sleeping in her car. And so that's the question we have to ask ourselves is are we comfortable as a community to have expectant mothers sleeping in cars? That's the only data point that I think we need in that conversation. Are we comfortable with that? Um, obviously data should help inform public policy, but in the end, that's the value discussion we need to have to move the dial to get the policy change we need. So. All right, thank you commissioner for your question and thank you commissioner for the answer. Um, I'm gonna do two more and then, this is a great opportunity to network and to build some coalitions. So I know our panelists will stick around, Emily and I will stick around, but I'm gonna do these two 
um, women here who have questions, and then it'll be more informal because we've got some great food. And remember, if you get a drink, the percentage of it goes to the Refugee Education Center. So Stephanie first, and then Mom. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. I'm, hi, so I'm Lily Schulting, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love the point that you made about homelessness, that it's also a racial problem. I think when you care about homelessness, you should care also about racial equality, am I correct? Mm -hmm. And uh, the two go hand in hand, and, and so my question is, in what way would you uh, increase the, dis the discussion and the inclusion of people of color? And maybe, you know, one idea I had is definitely as the elections approach, I mean, we just had one, but we will have another one in 2020. And let's consider candidates of color because they have a background, and not because they're a person of color, but also, you know, for instance, I am running for the state representative in District 72, and I'm not just a person of color, but I'm a person who's been an advocate and a leader in this community to move the needle for people of color, for people who are disadvantaged, and people who are disabled, because I did start as a disability advocate. And you know, I, I hope all of you will come and talk with me, talk with other people of color, women of color, and just you know, really learn about the issues and think about what they can give um, as who they are from their experiences, but also from their proven leadership in advocating for people of color. just had a couple of comments. Um, I appreciate this event. But I think um, the one thing that we lose sight of is um, if this is about homeless people, the best way to educate yourself is to have them present, um, not listening to a judge or representatives completely about this. Um, I'm a probation officer, and I've been working with families for over 29 years. Um, whether it be at Boys Town and group homes or what have you, and often in the courts we miss the mark big time. Um, you guys are saying because there is reasons why people have to charge rent. It's just greed. It's flat out greed. Um, it's if people are knocking on doors over near the wealthy area. They're asking people to move their house out of their house, and then they're buying it and they're charging twelve hundred dollars. Um, I'm talking about my clients I've had in cars. I've taken them, family members looking for apartments. It's just flat out greed. No matter what anybody tells you, it's greed. Um, the, the systematic issues, big time. Um, these apartment buildings want you to have three times the amount. How does that make sense? If I'm coming from a low, for a low income apartment, and I'm supposed to make three times the amount, that makes no sense. So until we have people at the table, it's just like about um, loving each other and about um, getting rid of racism. Until you get out of your comfort zone, come out of your house, 
and hang out with some homeless people or some people that don't look like you or, grew, or they didn't grow up with you, then we can't solve the issue. We won't solve it at events like this, but it's great to have the conversation because someone here may be writing a grant. Someone may be at the Department of Human Services or a lot of these people, believe it or not, are raising their rent so they can capitalize on Section 8. Um, so this is flat out greed. Um, there should be no reason why people from another country, I sat next, next to a commissioner years ago at the um, Giants event, and it was the first time I heard some commissioners tell me that people from other states can buy our property. That means that's greed. Um, I watch HGTV every day. I want to flip a house too, but I want to make it affordable, maybe to where my kids can uh, stay in it. Um, so it's the conversation, I think, as far as it's very deep because on Wealthy Street, when you go there, it's just a sea of white people. It's not that many people of color. So we have to talk about the restaurants. We go to them. I enjoy Electric Cheetah and all the restaurants. But those people who have lived there all their lives, they can't afford to live there. But we're eating in the restaurants. So it's just, it's a deep conversation. And I think a lot of it is greed. There are some people in other states that are doing wonderful things. There are hospitals, believe it or not. Hospitals investing in it because we're talking about mental health. We don't know which one came first. So if I don't know where I'm supposed to lay my head at night, then guess what? I'm sick. I have medical conditions. So we can't. It's hard for us sometimes because we have our degrees. We have our homes and it's hard. So we have to be able to bring some homeless people out. The best education I ever had was to be with the mom who a judge and attorneys were saying, take her kids, take her kids, take her kids. And I was just like, give me a chance to work with them. My family's heard this story over and over. But basically it was systemic issues. It was not about it was a lazy mom and take her kids. It was just that one of the dads had lost his job. She got an eviction notice and it spiraled down. I was able to sit there with her, with the judge from Lansing and be on a conference call and get $3,000 worth of food stamps awarded back to that family to fight for them. So you really have to get in the trenches, get to know some of these families, have them come to uh, events like this so you can really know what some of the itch, uh, issues are. But I would say um, a lot of it is greed. Thanks. Thank you, Officer Kilgore. Thank you. All right. Well, our panelists, I'd like to give them any final, final thoughts. And like I said, we will be up to network, eat some great food, get a drink. Yes, and sign in because Emily and I, my partner in Justice, we are going to be hopefully doing more of these. So any last comments? Yeah, so yes, ditto. But what I will tell you is that I have never been at an event like this. I've never been at a volunteer training. I've never been with a school group ever in my entire career where I have not met someone in that group who has been homeless mm -hmm. in our community. So always when we're out, homelessness is us. It's our neighbor. It looks just like us. We are it. So I think that we need to realize that and make space for those voices. But also, back to the policy thing, there's an announcement. Um, there is a homeless caucus being formed at our state legislature um, 
legislative body. And I know Timing Bray and a couple of other our local ones here are um, getting involved in that. And there's already some proposals, like they're looking at, could we maybe do state tax credits back to private landlords who are willing to not just make a buck, but bridge the gap a little bit and rent at a lower amount through partnerships with organizations like all of ours, um, instead of just the corporations getting the tax yeah. breaks. And these people, you know, the families we're talking about, they work at every single one of our major corporations here. Every, if I started going down the list and naming them, there are employees at every single one of your companies that you work at and with who have homeless people right now experiencing homelessness at, at your job site. So, you know, we have to look. It's not something we're going to go out and find somewhere. It's right next to us. You know, it, it, you can't deny that selfishness plays a role in moving the entire market one way, right? It only takes a handful of selfish actors, obviously, you know, often these out-of-state investor-owned corporations that then force the private landlords who might be living in this community who want to do the right thing but feel compelled. And so it's about creating policies that prevent that abuse from happening uh, and building new opportunities, um, you know, from helping create pipelines for community land trusts uh, to helping with creating financial resources for landlords, big and small, who want to do the right thing by their tenants. Um, to ensuring that local communities have the resources they need and the tools they need to tackle those uh, actors who want to abuse a crack in the system. Um, and obviously it's, it's about making sure that folks who've had that personal experience are at the table. As I mentioned before, the most convincing thing to, that I've seen come before the county commission were parents of kids who were poisoned by lead. Uh, that was more convincing than any piece of data that we've seen come before us. And how we can elevate those voices is the most important thing we can do. Mr. White, any last comments? <clears throat> no, I think uh, ultimately I go back to what I say. Um, start with us as individuals, the people we meet. That's really the, the first line of defense. And I think that has to be the line of, that we, uh, that we uh, tackle every day. Beautiful. Wendy? Yeah. Um listen to one another, step out and introduce yourself and have coffee with someone who has a different story than yours, um, and then introduce them to someone in a position of power. Oh, wow, we think, I'd like to thank our panelists, Judge Kelly, Cheryl Shook, Commissioner Wooden, James White, Wendy Randall, and I'd like to thank all of you all for spending your Sunday, and you could have been in your PJs watching football, but you came out there's a ton of food again, get a drink, and I encourage you all to network. Talk to someone you haven't met before, talk to some of the panelists or Emily or I, and let's network and let's find some solutions to the things that we've talked about, right? We've got the energy, we've combined minds, we've convened together, now it's time to really promote some change within our community. So thank you all so much for coming out and have a great rest of your, your evening.